My name is A.J. Rinaldi. For those of you who do not know me, I am one of the associate pastors on staff. For those of you who do know me, thank you for staying. <laughs> I have the privilege of continuing in this Daniel series with chapter 5. But before I get started, just a very quick uh, announcement. Some of last week's bulletins accidentally got shuffled in with this week's. So if you open it up and you saw Daniel 4 and you're wondering, what? That's why. So sorry about that. Uh, if you do feel compelled to get another one, feel free. Um, I won't be offended when I see you get up and walk out. Um, so we get to do Daniel 5 today. Um, <clears throat> now, as such, we are actually going to be asking some questions. We're going to be asking this question of trying or relying. Are we trying or are we relying? More on that later. But let's do a little review. Last week in our study of chapter 4, we heard the tale of Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled him because of his immense pride and the way in which his vainglory manifested itself in his reign. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar was compelled to acknowledge the one true God and his sovereignty over all. Now, as we open to chapter 5, there are a few interesting details that set the stage for our next tale of bravado and disgrace and eventual destruction. First of all, it's important to realize that approximately 36 years have passed between chapters 4 and 5, and a few significant changes were occurring in Babylon. Overall, the once great kingdom was actually in a gradual decline. Now, King Nabonidus, who was the king at the time, was attempting to restore the greatness of Babylon by rebuilding their temples and reviving worship of the Babylonian moon god. Uh, interestingly enough, his mother was actually the high priestess of the Babylonian moon god. Now, this quest of his had taken him away from the city for 10 of his 17 years as king. Therefore, he had left his eldest son, Belshazzar in charge. Now, Belshazzar was really the subordinate co-regent of Babylon. He was basically second in command, but acting commander in his father's absence. This is why he's called king and had the actual authority of the king. Now, this is an important point that we'll revisit later. Um, for those of you who don't know, this guy here, you know who this guy is. Um, this guy, if you've ever seen the Disney film Robin Hood, it's the best Robin Hood movie ever and probably the best Disney animated movie. That's Prince John. Uh, okay, so it's also important to keep in mind here that both of these guys, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, were descendants of Nebuchadnezzar. They would have been fully aware of what had happened to their predecessor. So Nabonidus had taken his show on the road and left Belshazzar to take care of the homeland, and the Babylonians were none too happy with all the things that Nabonidus was doing. This made the eventual fall of Babylon inevitable and actually all too easy for the Medes and the Persians. Now, even though the kingdom was in decline, <clears throat> much of the greatness that had been Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar still existed including the impressive city walls and fortifications. Now, this could have led Belshazzar into a false sense of security, which would only have been amplified by his enormous ego and excessive vanity. You see, as we pick up our story in chapter 5, Babylon is actually under siege. 
The countryside was most likely already under the control of the Medes and the Persians. They only needed to access the interior of the city for their conquest to be complete. Now, they'd already actually infiltrated the populace, who had become intolerant of Nabonidus, weary of his absence. And so the Persians still, however, needed to get their armies inside the city somehow. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Hopefully you can see this. don't know how clearly you can see that. But in this painting, you'll see the Persian army actually used the waterways to sneak under the gates. See, the Euphrates River, as you can see here, uh, actually ran through the city. Now, interestingly, this, the river running through the city, as well as the, the strong walls, the tall walls, uh, thick walls, and they had 20 years' worth of stored provisions, probably all played a big role in why Belshazzar really didn't show much concern about his ability to outlast a siege. However, what happened was the Persians diverted just enough water from the river flowing in and out of the city uh, to, to a nearby lake that Babylon actually fell without a flight as they waded right into the city. <clears throat> Meanwhile, despite the imminent threat, Belshazzar decides to throw this huge party. And here's where we pick up our story in chapter 5. So chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So in case you missed it, Belshazzar has now surpassed Nebuchadnezzar in, uh, in his utter contempt and flagrant disrespect for Yahweh. He and his mates are basically partying with the temple vessels partying and praising their false gods while they do it. Uh-oh. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Okay, this is not a metaphor, right? You get this. An actual disembodied hand was essentially carving letters into the wall. While that's a beautiful painting there by Rembrandt, I'm not sure he captured the true nature of this event. I think Thing from Adam's family is probably a better representation. You see this disembodied hand right along. I mean, the guy soiled himself. By the way, that doesn't just mean he wet himself. No, kids, he soiled himself. Yes, he pooped his pants. The guy literally spasmodically freaked out. Isn't that a great word, spasmodically? It's totally relevant in context here, too. How often does that happen? Now, Wayne likes to share Greek and Hebrew words with you. Uh, I want to share this word spasmodically. It's a real word, and you're welcome. <clears throat> I know you're going to go home and want to say that all day, spasmodically. All right, let's continue. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation 
will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So here's where the whole co-regent thing becomes relevant. See, since Belshazzar himself was the number two man, the greatest position he could offer would be third. And that's pretty huge, actually. He's making a crazy offer here. Perhaps he knows the end is imminent. It wouldn't matter anyway. Or, again, he is spasmodically grasping in a panic. Either way, he's desperate, right? So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Now, why couldn't any of them read the inscription? If it was in Aramaic or even in Hebrew, someone among all these wise guys should be able to easily figure it out. Yes, I would think so. Not if it was in a mystery language or a heavenly language, the holy writ of some sort. Clearly, God had a plan for his message to be interpreted, and that plan was very deliberate, as we'll see. But I believe it began by using mysterious text. More on that later. But, but as an aside, you notice I have used a mysterious text here as an illustration. If anybody knows what this text is, I have a bowl of candy here. After the service, come up and tell me, and if you're right, I'll give you some of this old Halloween candy. Okay, so... Let's move on. Verse 9. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. Now here we see the entrance of what was not one of Belshazzar's wives. They would most likely have been at this banquet. But most likely it was either his mother or possibly the wife of Nebuchadnezzar himself. This is a woman who has most likely experienced firsthand the wonder of God's working through Daniel at some point in the past, rather than just hearing the stories secondhand. So someone probably said, hey, go get the queen mom, maybe she knows somebody. And she does. She says, there is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. <clears throat> your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteljazar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit. Knowledge and intelligence and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts 
and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. It's interesting here how he refuses the gifts. He's like, look, look, I don't want that. See, Daniel's retired. He just wants to get back to the beach. He's like, seriously, dude, I've been there. I've done that. I'm ready to chill in the sun with my Mai Tai and my ukulele. Nevertheless, I will help you out this last time. Now, some of you may not agree with me, and that's okay, but I believe there's so much humor to be found within Scripture. God is a creative God, and humor is a creative thing. I think this is one of those times, actually the entire chapter, when it's okay to laugh a little with God at the absurdity of the situation. It's like Belshazzar, dude, you asked for it, man. So here you go. Little backstory first. Daniel says, your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, instead you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand, and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. Okay, let's roll back for a moment to Nebuchadnezzar's story. Last week in chapter 4, we see this take place. Then Daniel, whose name is also Belteljazar, was upset for a brief time. His thoughts were alarming him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream and its interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar replied, Sir, if only the dream were for your enemies and its interpretation applied to your adversaries. So see, his relationship with Belshazzar is much different than that which he had with Nebuchadnezzar. And clearly, he hasn't really been in the inner circle for quite some time. Daniel doesn't hesitate to lay it all out there. For one thing, he's much older, he's wiser, more experienced. He's not the young conscript anymore. He's a seasoned statesman. Again, he's at that age and position in life where not only is he not concerned about status, if ever there was a time where he completely recognized and trusted in God's sovereignty, it's now. And he has yet to face his biggest challenge, as you'll see next week. So Daniel continues. He says, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. So he takes that mystery language and he says, it is mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. 
Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez, which is a form of parson, means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is a gut punch. Talk about being knocked off your horse and off your throne. Daniel basically just told Belshazzar, you're finished, dude. Pack up and go home because your arrogance and disrespect for the holy God has cost you everything. This is your judgment and sentence will be executed very soon. There's a scene from a great movie that I think actually gives a, a good idea of what Belshazzar may have been feeling, and, and it's a, a great illustration for this. It's called A Knight's Tale. Some of you may have seen it, which depicts this very well, I believe. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry for you, but close your eyes and plug your ears, unless you don't, just don't care. Um, anyway, the antagonist, who's a really vain, arrogant, condescending noble, has just been dehorsed in a joust by the protagonist, who's a commoner by birth, but part of the story is his... Well, anyway, you just need to watch the movie. There, there's excellent themes of redemption and triumph. But as the antagonist faces his defeat, his humiliation, this is the vision that he sees. You have been weighed. You have been measured. And you absolutely have been found wanting. Welcome to the new world. God save you, if it is right that he should do so. So Belshazzar is about to face a new world, that's for sure. So uh, how does many, many tekel and parson translate into the phrase, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting? And furthermore, how did Daniel know all of this? Essentially, Daniel got all this from those three words. Mene is an Aramaic noun referring to a weight of 50 shekels. It's about one and a quarter pounds, so basically like five hamburgers. It's derived from Aramaic verb, which means to number or to reckon. Tekel is also a noun that's referring to a shekel, which is about two-fifths of an ounce, very small, very light, also derived from a verb meaning to weigh. Parson is a noun as well, meaning about 25 shekels, or about two-thirds of a pound. And again, it too is derivative of a verb, meaning to break in two or to divide. So that Daniel really had to have some serious divine intervention to interpret that, which he did. And as Dr. Pentecost said, uh, even if the wise men could have read the words, which they couldn't, they couldn't even read the words, they could not have interpreted them. For they had no point of reference as to what had been numbered, weighed, and divided. So let's revisit the issue of why no one but Daniel could interpret the inscription. There are a bunch of theories out there, but even the smartest biblical scholars don't all agree on why Belshazzar's wise men couldn't understand the text, 
But Daniel obviously could, and he translated it to Aramaic. Now, I like the way Tom Constable in his notes uh, says it. He says, scholars have wearied themselves trying to figure out how Daniel got his interpretation from these three apparently Aramaic words. They have been as unsuccessful as Belshazzar's original wise men were. It seems best to me simply to take Daniel's interpretation at face value. Even though we may not be able to understand completely how he arrived at it, it has been said that Daniel could interpret these words because he recognized his father's handwriting. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, to which Daniel was probably rolling his eyes. I told you I don't want this. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So in response to this narrative, I would like to pose a question. Are we trying to be God, or are we relying on God? Like Belshazzar, are we trying to be God, and in so doing, not only seeking to glorify ourselves, but showing contempt for His holy name? Now, I believe that there are, there are a lot more than three aspects, but I have tried to illustrate three aspects of what it looks like if we are trying to be God. The first one is vainglory. Love this word. We see ourselves as more important than we are. Just as Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar before him and so many others throughout time, if we see ourselves as self-important, allowing pride and ego to permeate our character, the natural outcome is that we develop a spirit of such intense self-reliance and become so inwardly focused that not only do we find ourselves forgetting God, we risk having an air of contempt toward God. <clears throat> this also manifests in a careless attitude as it relates to our relationship with others. So the second thing is carelessness. We fail to consider how our selfish actions affect others. As self-importance becomes the default, we see the world around us as self-serving. We become the center of our workplace, our school, our home, our church. It's all too easy for the thought that this exists for me to creep into our consciousness. As a result, we don't care about the consequences of the words we say, the things we post online, or the things we do. Those concerns that we once had slowly get eaten away as we try harder and harder to be the gods of ourselves. And finally, I think the easiest for most of us to fall into, I know I'm guilty myself, is worry. We doubt the providential nature of God's sovereign will. When faced with adversity, all too often, rather than look to the Lord for His provision, planning, and providential will, we lay in bed awake at night, watching a carousel of dragons in our mind spin around and around. And most of the time, those dragons are imaginary. At worst, there are very real issues we face. I know that. But as has been said so many times before, it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond. We can be concerned. That's okay. We sometimes have to take actions based on that concern. But at some point, you have to stop and ask yourself, and this is the big question. I really love it. Is God surprised by this? 
Is God surprised by this? If the answer is no, then that means he has a purpose and a plan for it. And of course for you. The point is when we worry, we set aside our understanding that God's got this. One of my absolute favorite passages in all of Scripture is Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Some of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with this. I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you. If you have your Bibles and you would like to read along, please do. I think this, this in, to such depth should inform this issue of worry. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Given the time and place in which we live, it is far too easy to fall into the trap of worry. Keeping up with the neighbors, keeping up with society, keeping up online. Worry, which leads to the question of whether God is sovereign or not. The question of whether God is in control. Sometimes the question of whether God is. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And Psalm 14.1, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. See, the fool sees himself or herself as God. The fool not only says there is no God, but in so doing is really saying there is no God but me. By their words and deeds, the materialist, the atheist, and even some who would say they are Christ followers are really saying, I am God. In contrast, what are we called to? We are called to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your path straight. So <clears throat> if we are to be like Daniel, relying on God, what does that look like? Three things. A lot more than three, of course, but I have these three. First one is humility. We rightly consider our position as dependent upon God. This is not degradation, by the way. <clears throat> All this means is that we humbly submit to God's authority and His will for our lives. We're not drones waiting to be programmed specifically to do exact thing. But we are completely dependent upon the creator of the universe, and it is right that we should live that way. <clears throat> which will naturally lead us to be concerned about how our words and deeds affect others. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly when he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. <clears throat> the second is discretion. We consider others before and above ourselves. Excuse me. Having a keen awareness and consideration for the things we say and do is a healthy characteristic of relying on God. Rather than being concerned of getting ours, we recognize that how we live our lives will have an impact on someone else. 
This is not like an anti-capitalist, socialist, or progressive position I'm talking about here either. It's simply caring for others. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And finally, if we are relying upon the Lord, we will have peace. We rest in the knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty. When we rest in the knowledge that God's grace and sovereignty over all the universe is sufficient for our needs, we will be at peace. Paul writes in Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As such, our lives will demonstrate a certain calm that will make people want to know what's wrong with us. Now, as Job acknowledged, who Job, among anyone, had the right to complain, and yet he was given a rebuke to his complaint. And when he realized who he was complaining to, he declared to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. No matter our circumstance, our calling is to confidently, boldly, and with conviction state the fact that God rules. God rules. He always has. He always will. End of discussion. Now, with that in mind, here's an easy way to remember our charge. We go to war. Now, <clears throat> I love the way John Piper says this. He says, there, we, we often speak in uh, terms of spiritual warfare. There's a warfare part of life and a non-warfare part of life. There isn't. When you're living the spiritual life, it is warfare. So, if we have this mindset, and I love acronyms, so I have an acronym to take with you today. We, we think in terms of going to war. When you wake up and face each new day, each new week, each new month, go to war. Worship. Worship the Lord God in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge that He is sovereign and rest knowing that nothing is out of His control. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for everyone here, Lord. Thank You for the offering that we're about to receive. We pray that it honors You. And uh, Lord, I just pray that as we go from here, we would rest in the knowledge that You are sovereign, Lord. May we rest in that. May we trust in you in all we do. And may our words and our deeds bring you glory. In Jesus' name.